This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. So I'm, I'm really happy to introduce our next guest. Um, Martin is going to be uh, speaking to us about the lorem ipsum of data visualization. Okay, so the lorem ipsum of data visualization and how to design data-driven wireframes. So three and a half years ago, uh, when I moved from Germany to Australia, I started as UX and UI designer at the data visualization studio Small Multiples here in Sydney. And at Small Multiples, we mostly do websites that have some kind of data visualization component. And you know, as UX designer, it's my job to mostly create wireframes. And because we're doing so many data visualizations, I'm often confronted with the question, how to create wireframes for data-driven products? And so the thing is, to be honest, I tried several different approaches and strategies, and I haven't really found the right answer to this question. So some strategies I used um, worked well, and some didn't work so well. And today I want to share some of these approaches with you, and I want to show you some of our um, client projects where we applied those strategies. Okay, but if, before I talk about wireframes and database, I just want to talk about the regular process um, of creating a website. Usually this goes from wireframes to visual design to development. Or at least that, that's how we do it at Small Multiples. And I want to show you some examples, and I want to focus on the content strategies that we use here. So let's start with wireframes. So here we see um, a wireframe of a mobile website or mobile application that shows a bunch of uh, team members. And we see a few placeholder elements here, like for the name, the job occupation, or the occupation, photo, as well as the job description. So the text we use here as a placeholder for the job description is like a special kind of placeholder text, the so-called lorem ipsum that you might have heard of. If you haven't, so lorem ipsum is like a, this is a very famous placeholder text that graphic designers often use if they have to put in some kind of placeholder text into their designs, but they don't really have any, any real content. So they just put in this. And it's simply called lorem ipsum because the fir first two words just happen to be lorem ipsum. It's like pseudo-Latin, and if you translate it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, so this is the wireframe, first stage. Second stage would be the visual design. So first thing, the visual designer would probably you know, add a bit of you know, font styling and colors. But at this point, we're still using these like lorem ipsum placeholders. And then strategy that uh, lots of visual designers do is add a bit of random but meaningful content. You know, like for example here, uh, the photo, first name, last name, and job, uh, job title. So this does two things. So first, we have a really nice look and feel of our website. And second, I can actually test my design now. So not sure if you noticed, but in the wireframes, I would, um, every first and last name fitted exactly on one line. But here, since we're using meaningful but random content, we actually realize that some names need two lines, so they're just too long. And this is a really important you know, requirement you know, for the visual design, as well as an important insight for the developer later. Okay, and then the third, third stage would be the development. And in the development, we're probably gonna use you know, actual real data, like the final data set. Like for example, here we see, here we see um, like actual people with real jobs, like, you know, Harry or creative developer. Okay, so the regular process, wireframes, design, wireframes, design, development, yeah. Okay, so I think we can all agree here that wireframes contain the basic structure of a page very early in the process using placeholders. 
and then meaningful content is added later in the design phase. Right? I think we can all agree on that. But here's the thing, you know, if you look at your basic structure and content, what if the content is fundamental for the structure? Or, you know, in our case of data visualization, what if the data is fundamental for the basic structure? Or, what's the learn epsilon of data visualization? So I think the answer to this is actually we have to put data into our wireframes. So again, you know, wireframes show the basic structure of a page, and the data might be fundamental for the basic structure. So we have to put in data into the wireframes. And so far, you know, from the regular process of creating a website that I just showed you, we already know three content strategies. So there's, you know, the placeholder content that we often use in wireframes, then the meaningful but random content we often use in the vision design phase, then the real content we used, usually use at the end in the development. But I think what we have to do when we deal with data visualization, I think we have to put all these three categories, uh, strategies, and apply them in our wireframe stage. I mean, maybe not all three at the same time, but one of these three. And I'm going to show you an example of how this could look like. So imagine we have this final design of a chart. We see some metric of the last 30 days, um, average, minimum, and maximum. So if this is our final design, how could the wireframes have looked like, right? So let's go through these three strategies we know and see you know, what the benefits uh, could be and how they differ. So first, the placeholder. So we could add like meaningless numbers and some um, rectangle placeholders, like you know, number one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, doesn't really make sense, but all the elements are there in, for the numbers. And then a rectangle chart, you know, like a bar chart, last 30 days, average line, like a description. Okay, so I think this is probably the first way um, everyone would, would choose if we think about database and wireframes. But let's think about some other ways. So we can add random but meaningful data. So up here, we see again some numbers, but now these numbers really make sense, and they really match what we see below in the chart. But again, even though like, it makes sense, it's still random. And then the third thing, we could actually add real data. And quite often when we do that, there are a few surprises. So up here, we see you know, it, it doesn't look as pretty as we thought it would. And the difference between the values is actually larger, larger than expected. And you know, several um, days actually share the minimum value. You know, and in the other design, you know, we didn't think that there might be like zeros and high values, but you know, in reality, in reality, this could happen. Okay, so the strategies for data with wireframes are placeholder data, meaningful but random data, or real data. Okay. So now I want to go through these three strategies, and I'm going to you know, illustrate it by showing you some of our client projects. And I want to start with real data. Visualizing georeference frog recordings in Australia. So Australian Museum has a really nice app called Frog ID that allows you to um, record a frog call and also the location. And then this data is going to be sent to Australian Museum, and some experts are going to verify the frog species. So we actually helped um, Australian Museum uh, design, design the app. I, I can't tell you who developed the app, though. It might have been IBM. Okay, <laughs> okay but this, this wasn't about the app. This was more about the data that went into the app. So the task was to build an interactive map of Australia with locations of all the frog recordings you know, from, from the project and filter locations by frog species, date range, and LGA. So first, we did some sketching. And based, based on our sketching, we realized we probably have to put in real data. 
This had two reasons. First, the visualizations are fundamental for their interaction. And second, we simply had real data already available during the wireframe stage. Okay, this is the final wireframe. Uh, we see very prominently a map of Australia in the middle, to the right, a list of um, species that also functions as filter, and at the bottom some um, summary stats, um, like you know, records of frogs. So in this view we see 89,235 records of frogs in the map, and also a bar chart um, that shows the monthly uh, recording activity. Okay, and you know we usually create like click prototypes to show the interaction. So that's what we did to show how the species filter work. So if you click on striped marsh frog, the entire view um, filters. So on the map we see, okay, the striped marsh frog um, is only distributed in the east of Australia, and there's a total of 8,819 records of frogs during that time. You know. Okay, so when I um, did these wireframes, it was actually super fun for me because when I when I did this, I was so sure that I w that I'm doing the right thing. You know, I could and really see that all the data points I had in mind, all the interaction, they really make sense because, because I could see, look at the numbers and really see, okay, it makes sense. And it was also really good when we communicated this, with, uh, showed this to the client. We had really in-depth conversation and the client really went through and read the entire interface. So I was really happy and the client was really happy. So you know, everyone was super happy. <laughs> But there, there were a few more benefits. So because I was um, exploring the real data during the wireframe stage, I noticed a few, you know, um, few little things. Like um, there are clusters of locations. Like the top cluster, for example, a thir has 30 frogs, frogs on exactly the same location. So, you know, as a UX designer, I thought, okay, well, um, you probably want to click on these clusters and then see you know, all the frogs that are in this cluster, and then you can just simply flick through and you know, get some additional information. But the thing is, I had no idea if this is technically possible. So during the wireframe stage, I just had a chat with our developer. He did some research, and then he came back to me and said, yep, Martin, we can do that. So what happened here was that very early in the, in the process, I identified a potential issue and I was able to resolve that issue, again, very early in the process, so there were like no data surprises in the end. Okay, this is the final wireframe again, or the first screen. Now I'm gonna show you what the final developed version looked like. Bit of color here. Um, but you notice it looks very similar to the wireframes, and even the numbers are very, very similar. So like, for example, here when you filter by striped marsh frog, and as well like the, the zoomed in view with the pop-up looks very similar as well, and the numbers and the data insights you get are identical. So you're probably all gonna say, woo, looks awesome. Why not always use real data when we're designing wireframes? Well, sometimes there's just no real data. What? <laughs> okay, so what do we do when we don't have real data? We can use meaningful but random data. This is exactly what we did in the second project. I want to show you today, visualizing clusters of New South Wales government agencies and their projects. Okay, so the brief was to build an interactive online visualization of New South Wales government projects and to show alignment with the three priorities of the digital strategy and to arrange projects by government cluster, priority, and budget. So for, for this project, we decided to show the projects in a like, force-directed bubble chart 
So each circle or bubble that you see here represents one project. The size of the uh, circle represents the budget. And the color, or you know, like in a wireframe, the shade of gray represents the digital strategy it, uh, it belongs to. So there's digital on the inside, customer experience, and data. So speaking of data, for this project, we didn't re use real data. The only thing we, the client told us that there, there will be roughly 30 projects and these three strategies. So um, I just uh, distributed all the you know, pro projects equally among the, among the strategies and I randomly applied some budgets. And e again, everything around the assumption that there were 30 projects. This is the entire first view of the um, first wireframe. And then if we sort, if you like click on by budget, we see all the projects you know, sorted by budget, major projects with a large budget on top and small projects, small budget at the bottom. If you click on, a, uh, on any project, additional information comes up in a sidebar. And actually, there's a bit of lower some text in the description there as well. Over here. Okay, so this is again the, uh, the first initial view of the wireframe. Okay, now I want to show you what happens when during development when we got the real data. So again, during the wireframe stage, we didn't have real data. We only got it during the development stage. This is the first view of the development of the developed version. You might be are able to spot it, but there were a few surprises. Actually, three major surprises. So first, there were way more than 30 projects. There were over 150 projects. So the, the issue with that was that it's really, really tough to find a specific project you're looking for if it's that much. So if you would have known this from the beginning, you know, during the wireframe stage, I would probably have pushed for like a search function or something. But since we were already like uh, through a visual design and, and in development, we couldn't implement the search function so late. And another thing, some budgets simply didn't have a budget assigned to them. And remember, so budget, no budget means, you know, no size. Um, I think it was some projects had like a confidential budget, I don't know. Um, so, you know, our, during development, our visual designer had to come in again and find a solution. And her solution was just apply uh, a default size and, and some pattern, you know, to show, okay, this is like uncertain. So even though we found a solution and everything worked well, it was still, you know, in sort of workflow a bit disruptive. And there was a huge difference in budget, way more than we, than we thought. Let's go back to the, the by budget view and explore this a bit more. So major projects at the bottom attract lots of attention, like the one, you know, yeah, you know, uh, this one, yeah, we get it. And the one at the top, you know, I can't even see it. I think it's like less than a pixel. So it does not attract any attention. And, you know, I can't click it to bring up more, more information. So we had to find a solution for this really quickly. And our solution was, we probably need to change the scaling. At this point, we were using a linear scale, but this really emphasizes the outliers. So what we did instead, we used a logarithmic scale that brings the outliers a bit closer together. So once we applied this scaling to the, to the design, or to, or to the you know, developed version, it looked much better. So small project got a bit bigger, and big projects a bit smaller, and every project was clickable. And the end is actually like a really beautiful website. However, I have to admit that the wireframes and the final developed version, they look quite different. And I think the reason was I was trying to use random but meaningful data, but I was actually using like meaningless data because I was building it around the wrong assumption of the number of projects. 
So looking back, I think what I should have done is, you know, push the client really to give me realistic key parameters. So this, this would have been a realistic total number, like 150 projects instead of 30, and then the minimum budget and the maximum budget, and then we could have thought it out, you know, then we would have implemented a search function and maybe come up with a logarithmic scale already. Okay, so this is a project where we, you know, try to use meaningful but random data. Let's explore when we would use placeholder data. So we did this for the portal for data on poverty and inequality in Australia. The brief was to create a website that showcases existing figures and charts about poverty and inequality in Australia, and to include fitters to let the user explore figures by theme. So this is um, the, the key, one of the key screens of the wireframes. At the top, we can see some filters, and at the bottom, a few figures. So we used uh, mostly placeholders here. So the placeholder contains, you know, a rectangle, the cross, and then, you know, figure, short title. So it didn't even have a real title. And we, we used this placeholder because this website, even though it contains lots of charts, was not about the charts at all. It was more about filtering and um, using categorization and so on. However, we included one key graphic that has a title and a chart just to give the client an idea where their charts, you know, what the placeholders actually represent. We could have, impl we could have implemented or inc included more charts, but that would have been more work for us and there wouldn't have been any benefit for us or the client. So I think using placeholder for this was the right way to go. Okay, so we learned about these three strategies, but remember, you know, it's not about creating amazing wireframes, it's about creating amazing data visualization products. So there might be another way um, of doing this instead of doing wireframes. So let's explore an alternative to this. Visualizing, comparing large amounts of genomic information. So some scientists asked us to explore a network of chromosomes, mRNAs, microRNAs, and proteins to support one of their studies about neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. This is the final developed version, and for this, for this um, project, I want to start with the final version and then walk backwards and show you the process. So we see a network visualization in the middle. Yep, the middle. And um, at the side, we see a sidebar with some filters. And um, this, the visualization contains um, four circles. So the inner circle, that's the chromosomes. Then the second circle, that's the mRNA. Then there's an outer circle. I hope you can like, sort of see that. It's the microRNA. And then the very outer circle, that's the proteins. So there's th over 3,000 nodes and over 6,000 relations in this, in this visualization. So I think you get the idea that it's insanely complex. It even gets more complex if you consider that there's filters and that every element is clickable and that brings up more information on the right-hand sidebar. So how would we create wireframe for something that is that complex? The answer, or at least you know, our approach and our answer is, you don't. So instead of what we did is we created sketches with very detailed annotations to communicate the visuals, the interactions, and the sort of data insights that it would get. So it looked like this, you know, like the slide with notes to the left and the, um, the sketch to the right. I think this worked really well and this was because the scientists were so involved with the data and the data insights that they were able to, 
to validate our ideas based on our sketches. However, there were a few surprises during, that we had to fix during development. So one was we were using flat concentric circles in our sketches, you know, so flat, flat lines here. But then we realized because it's so many nodes, we simply can't do it, and we have to find another arrangement. So, so we found another uh, more dense arrangement for it. Okay, so we learned about these three strategies and a few alternatives. And I think it's fair to say that if data visualization is fundamental for the structure of an in, of, uh, or interaction, we can use real data. If we don't have real data, it's a really valid and good option to use meaningful but random data, but we have to make sure we're actually using meaningful data. And then we can use placeholder data if the data visualization is not fundamental for the structure or interaction. Okay, I think there's only one question left. How do we build these kind of wireframes that contain random or real data? So one approach we often do is create the charts or visuals outside in another software, and then just import images into our wireframes. So this is exactly what we did for the map project. We imported all the data into QGS, which, which is like a, like a geo software, and then took screenshots and imported the images to our wireframe. And we made sure that the visuals we create in QGIS have the same visual style than the wireframes, so it still looks consistent. And the, the advantage of using another software is that quite often the other software is streamlined of doing these kinds of you know, advanced graphics or visuals or maps. So in this case, it was super easy to just filter by species, and then it was so easy to just include this, this picture uh, in our designs. So when we do wireframes, we often use Sketch, and we use Sketch in combination with a few other plugins, and I want to share with you two plugins that we use. So one is Data Populator. So for the frog sidebar, we had to include common name, letter name, and account of records, and it would have been so tedious to do this all by hand. So instead, in Sketch, with Data Populator, what you can do, just run the plugin, grab a file, click OK, and then it automatically populates everything into your design. It's very fast, very efficient, and very accurate. Second plugin I want to share with you today is Chip and Charts. The cool thing about Chip and Charts is that we actually developed it ourselves, and it's open source. And, no, but the real cool thing about it is that you can uh, create bar charts with random or real data, one example of random data. So here I have um, three you know, bar charts. I run the plugin, I add my Extrema, and then I have a bunch of random bar charts. If I'm more for a trend, chip and charts can also do that. Okay, so today we learned that if we want to create data visualization websites, it's a really good idea to include some kind of data into our wireframes. We learned about the three strategies, and we also heard about some alternatives like sketching. But I think it's fair to say that a really beneficial approach is to use real data in your wireframes. So if you use real data in your wireframes, you can really test your design, you can spot challenges very early in the process, communicate with the team, and eventually solve them, and you have really educated conversations with your clients. But most importantly, I really have to say, using real data in wireframes is really fun, and the clients love it. Okay, thanks.